thank you all. Thank you. Please take your Bibles or your device. And by the way, just so you keep the right spirit, when someone's in their phone nowadays, they may actually be taking notes on the sermon, not texting. Okay? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, beginning with verse 5. And last time I was here, I was reminded this morning, I didn't remember what I had done until lovely young couple came and shared with me something God had done in their life as we had shared concerning the subject of sincere faith. I believe, friends, we need greater, stronger faith, more consistent faith than ever at any time in our lives, and as time goes forward closer to the coming of the Lord. How many of you want greater, stronger faith? In chapter 8, verse 5, and when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. You say, wait, we heard this before. Sorry, I don't consult with pastor about what he's preached. He told me only last evening when we were at Babes. Oh, is babe? I'm going to tell you. And he said, what text are you preaching? And he said, I preached on that three weeks ago. Maybe the Lord wants you to get it. A centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, listen to these words, I will come and heal him. How many of you would have turned him down? I thought not. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. How was it that a pagan Roman centurion could have greater faith than anyone in Israel? By the way, my hobby is history, and it'll probably show this morning as I allude to a few things in history that I think validate or at least illustrate what God's truth is saying to us. In this current culture and climate in our nation, I am appalled at the disrespect for authority the rebellion against authority. Our nation needs to understand authority. Our legislators and Supreme Court and Chief Executive, the President, need to understand authority. And brothers and sisters, more than anyone, the church should understand authority. I want to share with you concerning some levels of authority that over the years as I have searched the Word and the piece together, I hope these will be of help to you. Number one, at the highest level of authority is divine authority. Regardless of what the Supreme Court decides to interpret, regardless of what the Congress decides to legislate, there are laws that the Supreme Court cannot interpret away and the Congress cannot legislate away. In the hearings that will come up on the next nominee for the 
justice of the Supreme Court. I don't know if these words will come up again as they did when Clarence Thomas was interviewed, but you might remember that certain senators asked again and again of Clarence Thomas, do you believe in natural law? Now, why would they be concerned of whether he believed in natural law? Because there are people in our legislature do not want someone on the Supreme Court who believes in natural law, because natural law is another way of expressing divine law. What county are we, are we in? Tarrant. There is no law in Tarrant County against planting your garden in December. Why don't people do it? I think it would make more sense. Save the spring for golf and fishing. <laughs> because there is a law. We read it in Ecclesiastes. There is a time to sow and a time to reap. God has established natural, divine laws in this universe against which no human government can stand. Divine law which is expressed in natural law. Secondly, scriptural authority. You see, we can only know about God what he has chosen to reveal to us. You see, we know what divine authority is because of scriptural authority. And every other kind of authority that we will mention this morning are all submitted to scripture. We talk often as believers about living in the word, and that's wonderful. I like what Martin Luther and subsequently Dietrich Bonhoeffer used a different preposition. They talked about living under the Word. That everything we do is submitted under the authority of Scripture, of God's Word. So divine authority is expressed in scriptural authority. And then we come to something that may surprise you, the authority of conscience. Because our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, our founders ensured that conscience would be respected in this nation. You cannot, in most countries of the world, say to the government, I can't do that in good conscience. You cannot say, I will not serve in the military because I am a conscientious objector. Or I will serve in the military, but I will not take up a weapon because I am a conscientious objector. Some of you know that, if you're old enough to remember World War I, which I assume no one does, but Sergeant York the most highly decorated soldier of World War I was a conscientious objector. Now, conscience always is submitted to Scripture. You can't on your way to church be late for Sunday school, even on this day of the year. And then you're stopped by a policeman and say, I'm sorry, officer, you can't give me a ticket because I'm late for Sunday school. Are you with me? Conscience must be submitted to the Word of God. If I would say these two words, how many of you, at least in my generation, would remember it? The words, me, lie. The massacre in Vietnam that was committed under the authority or the orders, we're told, of Lieutenant William Calley, his excuse was he was following the orders of his superior officer, Captain Ernest Medina. And do you know that an American court said that actually a lieutenant 
who is ordered by a commander in our army to do something wrong that is against conscience, it's no excuse that someone above you gave you that order. Hello? Are you with me? Let me see your hands. I can't tell by your faces. That is the authority of conscience. And then we come to delegated authority. Do you know that God has placed authority not only in the nations, I want to focus on the church. He has delegated authority in the church. I am asked often when we give testimonies the incredible growth of the church around the world in most countries. People say, why is it that churches grow so much more overseas than they do here? Now, there are a lot of reasons, but I'll tell you one, and I give this answer. I say, because they interpret Hebrews 13, 17 differently in most countries of the world than they do in America. Now, in case you don't know Hebrews 13, 17, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Notice, the leader over you is under someone else. You see, what gave this centurion, such great faith was he understood authority. There's a little preposition, a conjunction there rather, that says for. He says, Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to come under my house, but if you'll just speak the word, my servant will be healed. For. Now, whenever you find for in the, in the Bible, ask yourself what's this question, what's the for there for? The for is a conjunction that tells you what follows is the reason for what was just said. What was just said is, you don't need to come to my house, you just speak the word. For. Why? I also, he said. Now, to whom do you think he was referring when he said also? I also, like, implied you, Jesus. I like you. Now, we would say it differently if we had a position in the military such as this centurion. We would say, I am a man of authority. He did not say that. He said, I am a man under authority. He understood that the reason his soldiers did what he told them to do was not because of him, but because he was a representative of Caesar. Brothers and sisters, in whatever role we have in the body of Christ, we are under others whom God has placed it over us and delegated authority to them that relate to our spiritual lives. And no matter who we are, we are all submitted under the authority of the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We live under authority. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls, as though who must give an account. Pastor Smith will give an account for everyone in this flock. To the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd. We sang about the Lord is my shepherd. He is a good shepherd, according to God's word. He is a great shepherd, according to God's word. And he is the chief shepherd, according to God's word. And the shepherd, the under-shepherd, must give an account to the chief shepherd for you. And then, 
The writer of the Hebrews says this. Let them, I'm going to personalize it. Let J. Daniel Smith give account for you with joy and not with grief. I'm, I, there's a reason I stepped out of the pulpit. My wife tells me, don't preach your opinions. So when I'm going to give an opinion, I step out of the pulpit. Are you with me? You see, we are all accountable to the Lord himself. We are all accountable to the Lord himself. I will tell you, I am a friend of many pastors. In my lifetime, it has never been more difficult for my dear pastor friends to pastor than it is today. There's never been a time when more of my pastor friends have had to give account with grief instead of joy. I'm happy to tell you I've never gotten that grief from your pastor. But I will tell you, it's hard to pastor in this culture and climate in these United States. Because you see, overseas, here's how they interpret Hebrews 13, 17. Exactly like it says. Obey your leaders. It's that simple to them. I could give you illustrations, but I don't have time. Let me tell you what I think is kind of the American paraphrase of that. I'll cooperate with my pastor if he can give me at least two or three good reasons why he wants me to do this. Are you with me? In fact, you know a lot of people who attend church don't even have a pastor anymore. Instead, they have a multiplicity of, I will call them, spiritual advisors, whether they have heard them in person or on television. They have a multiplicity of spiritual advisors they consult until they hear what they want to hear. Are you with me? Let me see your hands. I can't tell by your faces. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Why? Because if they have to do it with grief, it'll be unprofitable. Not for pastor, but for you. He said, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, I am not a pastor. I am a missionary evangelist. But I work at the national office. I've got more bosses. Missionaries have more bosses than anyone else in the fellowship. We've got to be accountable to everybody. But, you know, I have been a member since I was 12 years of age of Central Assembly in Springfield, Missouri. And a few years ago, a friend of mine, Dr. James Bradford, who has a Ph.D. in aerospace engineering, and I had known him for many years, and he came to be my pastor. And when I spoke to him the first time after he was my pastor, and I was always addressing him as pastor, I'd say, Pastor this, Pastor. He said, Randy, how many years? We've known each other for 20 years. I'm Jim to you. And I said, not anymore. Now, you may think this is some quaint old Pentecostal custom. I believe, and Scripture upholds this, in delegated authority, when God establishes authority in the church, He gives that authority wisdom, discernment, judgment, far beyond their own IQ or capacities. Now, after Pastor Bradford served as my pastor for five years, and I always called him pastor. 
He was elected to be the general secretary of the Assemblies of God over 13,000 churches. So in the ecclesiastical arena, he has been promoted. And now I call him Jim. Do you get it? Because he's no longer my pastor. You see, it's a whole different thing. Ecclesiastical authority and delegated pastoral authority. Now, following Dr. Bradford was a young man named Jeff Peterson. I had known him for many years. In fact, my part-time assistant pastor in Fairview Heights, Illinois, before I went to the mission field, was Jeff Peterson's father. Jeff Peterson was 12 years of age. When he came to Central Assembly and I started addressing him as pastor, I got the same lecture. Randy, how many years have we known each other? I am Jeff to you. I said, not anymore. Because now you're my pastor. And just a couple of months ago, he was called back to his home district to be in district office. He was promoted and when he came before, he didn't want me to find out secondhand. So he came to my office, made an appointment, came to my office. I thought, am I in trouble? Let me tell you why. Because, you see, I had told my pastor, who was 12 years old when I was a pastor, I explained to him, I said, you know, I will come to you when I make any significant decision. I will consult your advice. I will ask for your prayer. And I ask you, if you ever see anything in my spirit or attitude that are wrong, I hold you accountable to God to correct me and rebuke me because I need you to be my pastor. And he came to me and said, Randy, I don't want you to hear this secondhand, and you're out preaching every weekend, but this coming Sunday I'm announcing my resignation. I wanted you to know. And I said, I'm so sad, Jeff, but at least now I can call you Jeff. Are you with me? Well, they chose an interim pastor. Guess what? They chose a former pastor, Jim Bradford. So now I call him pastor again, and he's got to get used to it all over again. Do you understand what I'm saying, friends? There is delegated authority that God has placed within the church. And then there's another kind of authority. There is ordained authority. Paul talks about it in Romans 13, that every soul, every soul is to be subject to the higher powers. Now, I will tell you something honestly. I have never liked, I don't like, and I never will like comedians making fun of my president. Not the current one, not the previous one, not the one before the previous one, or the one before the previous one. It has nothing to do whether they are Republican or Democrat. They are in the highest office of the land, and they should not be held up to ridicule before a world that scoffs at our nation because of the disrespect. I probably should have gotten out of the pulpit for that one. Are you with me? Let me see your hands. Not only does Paul say every soul be subject to the higher powers, Peter says, submit to every human institution, whether it's governors or kings or whatever. He said, submit to that institution. Why? For the Lord's sake. We are to submit to 
civic authority for the Lord's sake. Why? Because he has ordained authority. Do that, does that mean I think every election is always God's will, the result? Of course not. But I can tell you, whether it was God's will or not, the authority they hold is God's will, and we respect the office to which they were elected. And then we come to functional authority. We really need to understand functional authority. Let me give you a little illustration. Let's say on the way to Babe's last evening, Pastor Smith and I were driving along and there we saw flashing red lights or blue or whatever the car colors are of the police cars in the Metroplex. And there was an accident. There was an unconscious man lying in the street with a head wound bleeding from the head. And we stop. There's no way to get around. We stop and we get out. And there's a police officer there. By the way, are there any police officers here? Let me see your hand. I wonder how you never wrinkle. I just, have you ever noticed they don't wrinkle? Permanent pressed was designed that was to describe policemen. Their badge is always polished. They look impressive. They're supposed to look impressive. And they say to Pastor Smith and me, you two, pick up this man, take him over and put him on the lawn, get him out of the street. And so we're headed toward this unconscious man, and a lady comes out of a house in a terry cloth bathrobe and slippers with little bunny heads on the toes, her hair in curlers, cold cream on her face, and says, don't you touch that man. And the officer says to her, and just who do you think you are, lady? I am a registered nurse at Baylor Hospital. Don't you touch that man. Now, who has higher civic authority? The policeman. Whom do you think Pastor Smith and I should obey? The policeman or the lady with the bunnies on her slippers? How many vote for the lady with the bunnies on her slippers? That's called functional authority. Now, I will tell you, I think the pastoral authority covers the whole realm of the church. I think the pastor ought to have a say in the decor, in the design of the platform. But he shouldn't choose the carpet if he's colorblind. Are you with me? I can say that because Pastor Smith's not colorblind. Are you with me? By the way, let's take it right down home. In Ephesians, Paul says this, and a lot of people love to quote this. If you'll notice, most of the editors of translations of the Bible, you do understand the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired of the Holy Spirit, right? We didn't have chapter divisions for 1,500 years and verse divisions till about 100 years after that. The chapter divisions were given to us by Bishop Langton, one guy. It wasn't even a, a, an academic committee. One bishop gave us our chapter divisions. And a printer in Paris gave us our verse divisions. And Zondervan and Thomas Nelson and all the rest of them and Tyndale give us our, the paragraph divisions. And in my translation, most translations, they start the paragraph at 
Wives, obey your husbands or be subject to your husbands. And they start the paragraph there. That's because most of the editors are men. But the paragraph doesn't begin there, folks. The verse before says this. Sub be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You say, is there a time for the, for the husband to be subject to the wife? I'm getting off the platform. I don't know if you know, I'm moseying away from the pulpit here. Because <laughs> I'm giving you my opinion. Let me tell you, if you're wise husbands, if the wife is a better money manager, let her run the checkbook. There's nothing gender specific about handling the money nor the grocery shopping. Since the birth of our second child, I have done all of the grocery shopping when I am in town. And it's not because, well, first of all, she doesn't like it, and she gets confused. Listen, 113 different kinds of cereal. I counted them. <laughs> Ruth can't handle that. Hello? You know what? I discovered when Ruth was pregnant and had toxemia and had to have her legs up until Russ was born, I discovered that I enjoy grocery shopping. It's like snorkeling. No, I mean it. It is. I snorkeled in the South Pacific. You put your head below the water, you can't think. You know, in a grocery store, you can't think about your problems. You can't buy groceries and be thinking about other stuff. Are you with me? I give more illustration, but I don't have time. How many get it? Let me see your hands. I can't tell by your face. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I will tell you, friends, along with this, along with this, friends, we come back to the beginning. I said these to give us perspective in all these intermediary levels, but may I tell you what we as the Church of Jesus Christ need to understand more than ever before is it go back, goes back to the highest level of authority that we each are to be personally subject to the King of kings and Lord of lords himself. And may I tell you, with being subject to that king. And I wish I had time to give you illustrations, but when you are subject to the king of kings and lord of lords, the benefits are literally out of this world and in this world. Because our God, as we've been singing about in the worship, rules all... Do you know, let me tell you something, folks. There are a lot of authorities in this world but let's get it straight. Do you know that the Word of God says, calls Satan the God of this world, lowercase g, and the ruler of this world? Satan rules. God overrules. Satan is mighty. God is almighty. No matter what the enemy tries to do to your soul, if you are God's property, he can, overrule, he can transform the very weapon Satan has formed against your soul into an instrument of God's mercy, grace, power, and blessing. He didn't promise everything would be good. He promised he'd walk, work all things together for good. And I just want to close with Four simple things. I told you, history is my hobby. 
And throughout history, I have read about monarchies. And I will tell you, I grew up in East Africa under the British school system. And uh, I don't know how much, I, I think he's less than a year older than I am, but Prince Charles. I was fascinated as a kid in British schools that there was this guy my age that was a prince. And I was with my son Raleigh. I was out over preaching in England, and in between the Sundays, my son who was a golfer, we would go golfing in between, and we went down to Sandwich to golf at Royal St. George's. And then we were staying at a place called the Foreign Missions Club, which is a, a, a hostel or something for missionaries, so it's very affordable, not as expensive as a hotel. And we got back after supper. There was nothing there to eat, so they roll up the streets in London at night in most places, and I said, you know, son, there's one place that'll be open down at Leicester Square in the theater district, so let's go down to Pizza Hut there. So we got on the tube, the subway, went down to Leicester Square, got off, and we're going into Pizza Hut, and I noticed next to Pizza Hut was the Odeon Theater, and there was a mauve-colored Bentley parked there, right? Now, this isn't a street. This is in, in, in the plaza. And there was one policeman there, and I said to the policeman, I said, what's with the, the Bentley here parked? He said, oh, the royal family is in watching a movie. It happened to be the movie aired 84, Charing Cross Road. And uh, now I will tell you, the previous year when we were in England, my wife has this thing about the royal family, and she said to me when we were in England, honey, can you find out where the royal family is going to be? I want to go see them in person. I said, honey, the royal family is not like monkeys in a zoo that the, you just go and see them, and they're there to perform for you. Well, she hunted the newspapers, couldn't find anything where they were going to be. And so I said, wow, this is interesting. I said that, say, we go into Pizza Hut, have our pizza, we come out, the Bentley's still there. Now there are about just 30 people there because they had found out the royal family's there. Okay, and so I said to the policeman, I said, are the royal family still in there? Yes. I said, well, when are they coming out? He said, in about 10 minutes. And I said, Raleigh, you want to stay and see the royal family? He said, nah, I'm beat. I want to go home to bed. I said, honey, don't you want to tell mom when we got home that we bumped into, these were in better days, this is a while ago, to Prince Charles and Lady Diana. They were the ones that were in the theater. He said, yeah, that might be fun. So we stayed there, and I will tell you, I'm getting out of here for a different reason now, but uh, when I stood there by the Moth Bentley, Prince Charles and Lady Diana came out as close as I am to Pastor and Becky. And I must confess, I didn't think I would be. I was impressed. They know how to walk. They know how to wave. They have been trained. Are you with me? You know why Prince Charles is prince and why he's next in line to the throne and Prince William after him and now Prince Harry got bumped down two more positions because, believe it or not, baby Charlotte is ahead of Prince Harry for the monarchy by birth. It's only by birth. Do you know that actually most kings in the world have been made the first way is by birth. But there is another way. And that is how Pope Leo III, who was protected by Charlemagne, in return gave him a very nice gesture. Pope Leo III, in 800 A.D., Christmas Day, as the old St. Peter's Basilica, crowned Charlemagne king 
of the Holy Roman Empire. You see, that's another way to kingship, is by conferral of a higher authority. And then there's another way. Do you remember King John? King John signed the Magna Carta. It was really a trade-off because he was giving rights to the people they never had before. And in exchange, the people made King John king by the third means or way to kingship, which is acclamation of the people. So by birth, by conferral, by acclamation, and there is a fourth one, William of Normandy in 1066 crossed the English Channel from France and conquered England and established the lineage of the Norman kings by conquest. Each king in human history has only been king by one of those four ways. And you say, Randy, why the history lesson? This is getting boring. Stay with me. There is only one king who is king by all four ways, by birth, by conferral, by acclamation, and by conquest. When Matthew wrote his gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, he began with what people think is a boring genealogy of these 14 generations and 14 generations to trace from the king of Israel, David, all the way to a carpenter named Joseph, that Jesus of Nazareth was born in the lineage of the son of David. He was king by birth. And to confirm it, just one little thing, a mystery that pagans, like this pagan centurion, Listen, God will use whoever he chooses to to confirm his truth. Sent these pagan magi to the baby Jesus. And they said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And if you'll turn with me just to a few verses... First of all, Matthew chapter 22, again in the Gospel of the Kingdom, verse 41, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your Feet. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. And Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. 
Wherefore God also, the higher authority, hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was conferred on him by God the Father who said, Come, sit at my right hand. I will put your enemies under your feet because it was conferred. He was born to be king. It was conferred on him. And there will be a time when the acclamation of the people... Every, read that, say that word with me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that he is both Lord and Christ. And I have one more scripture to read to you. Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high... He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Peter in Acts, I believe it was chapter 4, said this. First of all, he said, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But when he talked to Jesus, he said this word impossible. It was impossible that death could hold him. Here's why I believe that's so. We know that our Lord for 33 years lived a life without sin. He paid the penalty for sin, though he had never committed the crime. And the greatest injustice in the history of the universe took place when he died. He paid the penalty for something he'd never done. It was impossible that death could hold the sinless Son of God. And after three days, He led captivity captive. He ascended. And in Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, the last living disciple, John the Beloved, was given a vision and a, and a, and a personal presence of the Lord Jesus. And he said this, and I close with this text. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of hell. Excuse me. May I say that again? I have the keys of death and of hell. And I had to turn, say to Theta, just 
during the worship time to let her know that her old friend, my dear sister, at 72 years of age, died a week ago. And I preached her funeral. I spent the night with her all alone. It was a precious night. And then she was moved into intensive care. And when they took her off of the ventilator, she said, if I can't breathe on my own after this, don't put it back in. And they took her off the ventilator, and I held her hand. And held her hand until the shallow breaths got less and less and farther between and stopped. And I could know that the authority of Scripture says to me to be absent from that broken, suffering body is to be present with the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords who holds the keys of hell and death. And how do we respond? So many things flooded me and I was sharing with Pastor yesterday and as I woke up early this morning how do we respond to the king who died for us and Isaac Watts whose grave I visited in a little graveyard in London overgrown with weeds people don't go there and there's a stone Isaac Watts when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And my favorite verse, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands Oh, yes, it demands it, but he doesn't. You see, with all of his authority, though he is king by birth, by conferral, by acclamation, and by conquest, he will only rule those who choose to bow the knee. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Would you close your hands? Just lift your hands to him. Just sitting in your seat, lift your hands to him as Brent comes. Brent, just lead us a few moments in worship. The King of Kings died for us. And I know there was an eternal transaction that took place that ransomed our soul. And the theologians for two millennia have grappled with the meaning of the atonement and theories of the atonement, and none of them get it because, as a dear friend of mine, Dr. Gordon Fee, said to me once, and I asked him, which theory do you believe, Gordon? He said, I get a little help from this one, I get a little help from that one, but he said, we don't understand the atonement. We just know it works. But I will tell you about that. Yes, there was a divine transaction. He ransomed our soul. 
And he satisfied the holiness of God and all of those things. But he gave his life to win our hearts. If he's won your heart, would you just lift your hands and worship him as Brent leads us?